Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Russia and Ukraine have recently launched large-scale strikes on each other, inflicting many civilian casualties on both sides. Where is the conflict going in 2024? Are we getting any closer to the end of the war? At the same time, G7 countries are considering confiscating Russia's $300 billion in foreign reserves, which could potentially escalate the confrontation to a new level. If so, how will it affect the credit roles of the global financial system? Joining me today are Pavel Felgenhauer, Russian defense analyst, Rurich Bruckner, Professor of Political Science at Stanford University in Berlin, and Joe Bo, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Security and Strategy of Tsinghua University. Welcome to Dialogue. Pavel, I will start with you. you know, we have seen these frequent large-scale airstrikes against each other you know, between Russia and Ukraine. So what's going on? Are we seeing escalation of the conflict here? Uh, well, that's uh, turning to a bit different stage. I would say it very much uh, resembles what happened in the so-called first Gulf War between Iraq and Iran in the 80s, when offensives and counteroffensives ended both, by both sides ended in a bloody stalemate, and then began the so-called War of the Cities uh, the air forces of both sides, like right now in, in Russia, Ukraine, did not venture into enemy airspace, but long-range missiles were used to attack targets be behind the uh, front lines. And this war of the city basically ended the, the war in the active phase, and there was a, a, a ceasefire and then an agreement, uh, basically a peace agreement of sorts, based on the line of, uh, of control, and basically both sides had what they had, and that's how the war ended. And it's possible that here, between Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine, of course, supported by the West, it may end it, uh, in uh, some kind of agreement to end the, uh, the fighting on the pre freeze the present situation, more or less what is known in Moscow as uh, the uh, Korean scenario, like in uh, the Korean War ended in a ceasefire on line of control, that would be the most likely, the most logical ending for this uh, prolonged conflict. And Joe Bo, you know, are we at a new stage? And then what is the strategy? So like is the both sides are pursuing a ceasefire sort of by pressuring the other side? I don't think this is a really a new stage, but it's certainly an escalation, and this kind of escalation is almost inevitable. Because talking about the war in Ukraine, the question is, nobody knows when it will come to an end. Unlike the war in Gaza, where, well, even if we have a ceasefire, we don't know when it might crop up again. So this kind of war in Ukraine, no one knows how long it will last, and nobody knows how it might appear, but the Pro, the most probable scenario, in my opinion, is the kind of armistice. Eventually, people might be bogged down in the four regions that are already declared by Russia uh, as a Russian territory, according to Russian constitutions. Because the question is, Russia, I believe, can more or less sustain the war efforts because it has a larger population and its military production is in full gear. But on the other side, uh, Ukraine, it needs 
endless and a similar support from the Western countries, which might be a problem so long as the war drags on, because uh, people might just have a kind of syndrome of being fatigued. Mm -hmm. uh, speak of that, uh, uh, Powell, uh, do you see that, uh, do you agree with uh, Joe Biden, you know, for, on the Russian side, I mean, speak of the sustainability, I mean, Russian is uh, you know, enjoying its own advantage of uh, having a large size of land, you know, um, rich in mineral resources, in agriculture, fruit here. But, but if you look at Ukraine, it enjoyed the support from the Western countries, but now there's a fatigue. I mean, there's a rising, there's a problem with the funding the war. So do you think that may somehow create some pressure probably for, for Ukraine on the Western side to, to seek a ceasefire? Well, of course, Russia is much bigger than Ukraine in geographically and in population and, and industrial potential and in military might. It's a nuclear superpower. And of course, Ukraine could not stand for two years uh, fighting against Russia successfully without massive Western support. It depends on that Western support, absolutely. But Russia has also different kind of problems internally and uh, problems on the battlefield. And Ukraine has lots of different problems. That's why actually they have a bloody stalemate on the front line, because both sides have advantages, both sides have problems. In Moscow, there's a hope that in the West, they'll understand that trying to defeat Russia is a hopeless proposition, and that they'll put some pressure on Kiev to begin to negotiate some kind of compromise, basically based on uh, freezing the status quo as it is for the time being, without, of course, anyone signing formal peace treaties agreeing to change of land, but uh, ending the fighting as it is at the present uh, uh, positions. So that's the basic hope on the future in Moscow. In Ukraine, they still say that they're going to fight till they liberate everything they want to liberate, which seems right now far-fetched. But And the West says that they won't put pressure on Ukraine. So it's a bit of a conundrum there. And this stalemate may continue, but of course it can't continue indefinitely. This war will have to come to an end. So, Paul, of course, you know, now uh, what we see, at least if you listen to the politicians from Western countries, uh, they are not talking about, uh, you know, pressuring Ukraine to seek a ceasefire, you know, uh, to stop the, uh, the struggle. And then you do see they are trying to be creative. For example, what about uh, the, the new idea or the revived idea of confiscating the Russian foreign reserve of $300 billion? Uh, you know, that could be a great help uh, financially to Ukrainian side? Well, potentially, yes. And politically, apparently, there is some agreement in the West that that would be a good idea. But legal experts in the West uh, say they're putting or pouring cold water on it because a lot of that money belongs. Uh, this, this is the uh, foreign policy, uh, foreign currency reserves of the Russian Central Bank and confiscating central bank assets, well, that's very tricky because that could undermine the confidence in the whole world financial systems because everyone understands that central bank money is kind of sacrosanct. 
so a lot of that money is also private from different rich Russian companies and uh, people. Again, confiscating something uh, of private property without a proper legal action, I mean a court decision, and how you get a court decision. So right now there's political will to do that, but the legal framework is totally unclear. I think right now the only viable idea is that they will take uh, the uh, uh, percentage uh, 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 money that uh, was earned on that capital that is right now frozen, which also, I mean, in Europe, we're talking about several billions of euros, and that these uh, uh, percentage proceeds could be taken, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, and channeled to Ukraine. But that's not, of course, just a fraction of the entire sum. Uh, will the West come up with such an, any kind of viable idea? It's not clear because there's a lot of apprehension in the legal and financial sectors of the Western society to do something rash like that. Uh, well, Joe Boyd, um, let's assume they are able to, um, say, transfer the money, the foreign reserve of Russia, of about $300 billion to the Ukrainian side. Of course, the purpose is to continue the war. Uh, the final purpose is to defeat Russia. But will that be enough to win, to get a victory uh, in the battlefield? I don't think so. First of all, I don't believe uh, they can actually do that because, uh, yes, uh, as the United States actually has practiced uh, to have uh, the 7 billion US dollars uh, for Afghanistan, as uh, that's uh, the money of Afghan people. Yeah, to have it to the victim of 911. But of course, that is totally immoral, right? Because that is the money of Afghan people. How can you just give money, half of the money, to the relative of 911? Uh, that is totally surprising for me. But then, uh, as for uh, how much money is needed in the war, because uh, we do not have the answer now how the war might or when will it end. So therefore, it's um, uh, insignificant for us to talk about uh, how large a sum of money could actually uh, rescue the situation. I don't think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the sad thing is, nobody knows when it might have come to an end, but if, comparatively speaking, I would say that Russia seems to have uh, an upper hand or what happened. Yes, I mean, that, that's generally the consensus that Russia has upper hand, but then, you know, the West is working together with Ukraine. Of course, they want to continue to prop up the, the Ukrainian government and to fight uh, in, the, in the battlefield. Uh, but so what's the next step for the West to support Ukraine uh, financially and also in terms of uh, the weaponry? Well, I think that actually the Western country is using this kind of uh, threat as a kind of strategy because uh, Clearly, if they do, you know, confiscate the Russian money, then it will just have a lot of consequences. First, how people might think about, uh, you know, Western financial system, the SWIFT system, and so on and so forth. Right now, we're seeing the expansion of the BRICS, right? And uh, what actually is a, is a glue that would actually bind all the uh, BRICS countries and the BRICS plus countries all together? One of the reasons is a fear, common fear, of the monopoly of your dollar. So if uh, the Western countries do this, I'm sure all countries would become worried about uh, uh, their own uh, financial security. And that certainly would not be a good news for the Western countries. 
So even internally among Western countries, there, there, there are a lot of uh, you know, different voices. And I believe right now, this is just a, a testable loop. Yeah, I don't believe the Western countries can really put that into practice. Mm -hmm. So it uh, remains an idea right now. Uh, so we have a Professor Bregna uh, over the phone. Uh, so, Professor, if you look at uh, the situation right now, you know, probably people would agree there's an escalation of uh, the, the, that's the war uh, between the two countries here. Uh, but then what is the strategy, for example, for Ukraine uh, to strike, the, say, the cities or the civilian area beyond the frontier of Russia? Well, for Ukraine, it's a very difficult situation because they were hoping that they can succeed militarily on the ground, and they found out that it didn't work. And at the same time, they are observing a changing mood in Western societies, which was a risk from the start, because in pluralist societies, people have the freedom to say what they want and form an opinion, whether it's in their personal interest to support a country or whether they buy the idea of Ukraine is defending Western values and principles, or if they rather look at the short-term costs. So this was from day one a problem. Will the West stand united and will public opinion continue to make sacrifices in order to support Ukraine? So at the moment, it seems as if nothing is really moving on the ground. And even if we speak of an escalation of using different military equipment, like long-term, long-range missiles, it is not a game changer. What I personally don't understand is what the motivation of the largest country in the world is to steal territory from a neighboring sovereign state. And if we ask for the credibility of the West to confiscate assets of Russia, the same could be said for a BRICS country that even is a member of the Security Council to invade an innocent neighboring country that also doesn't support the credibility of members of that organization. So it is a big mess, but it's difficult to see what the solution in the short term could be like. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor, on your first point, are you suggesting that there's a change of public opinion in terms of supporting Ukraine in Western societies? I'm not suggesting it, but it was clear from the start that in a pluralist system, people have the freedom to express a different opinion from what the government finds beneficial. And this has been happening all the time, and that explains why Western societies always appear rather as a cacophonic orchestra and do not just sing the song that the government defines as this is how we want to appear. So if there are changes in terms of who benefits in the long run and who pays a price in the short run, take, for example, the grain farmers in Poland that were complaining that grain that is transported over the Polish border ruins the grain price in Poland, they personally pay a price that people in Portugal or in the Netherlands don't pay. So they have a reason to complain, and their support for the mission in Ukraine is a different one. This is, in essence, part of a pluralist system, and therefore it's always at risk when we speak of then is the West united in its support for Ukraine? So it can erode any time.
Mm -hmm. I ask that question because, you know, at the very beginning of uh, the war, there's, uh, you know, basically universal support in Western societies from the government to the public uh, to support Ukraine. Uh, so if, if that's the case at the very beginning, uh, you know, two years later, almost two years later, are we seeing uh, the weakening support uh, from either from the government level or from the public level? I don't think we can generalize it. We have seen changes in different governments and their attitude towards Russia is different or used to be different in the past. When you only look at Meloni's coalition partners, they were much more friendlier towards Russia than the previous government in Italy. We also see a rise of populists who also simplify the complexity of the problem and instrumentalize people's fears or their opposition towards what governments want. So this is changing, but it doesn't show a specific trend. What is much more serious is what will happen after the next presidential elections in the United States. So this is completely unpredictable. And what we see already between Democrats and Republicans is that they instrumentalize the financial support for Ukraine for domestic reasons. And that's a big risk for Ukraine. But when I look at Europe, Europe still stands united and supports Ukraine because they do understand that what happens in Ukraine has immediate consequences for our way of life and what the European Union stands for. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor, you know, if let's assume, you know, at least, you know, if you look at the election situation in the United States, at least there's uh, probably uh, more than 50% chance of, uh, of uh, Trump winning the election. I mean, if you look at the opinion polls right now, uh, Trump versus Biden, uh, so there's, uh, there's a chance for him to uh, come back to the White House. What will happen in terms of supporting Ukraine? Well, what he announces is that if he will become the president, the war will end within 24 hours. He just calls his buddy Putin and things will be set. I don't think that this is a practical solution, as all the other simplified solutions that he was flirting with ever led to anything. He's a very erratic person that simplifies, as all populists do, and it would be far from being a reliable solution. Because what I said before, that this is not about territory. This is about a conflict of different political systems. And therefore, Putin isn't interested in expanding the territory of Russia. Putin is interested in destroying Ukraine as an independent system that has the right to choose where its future lies. And if Ukraine has chosen to belong to the West and to apply for membership in the European Union and in NATO, this is something that Putin fights against by breaking international law and violating international standards. So this is not about territory and the war will technically end with a ceasefire, but it's neither acceptable for the people in Ukraine to lose territory and citizens of the country to an aggressor on the other side of the war line, but it's also not accessible for the international order as such. Mm -hmm. Pavel, I want your response to uh, Professor Brokner. You know, he touched upon uh, this situation, like Russia seized more territory as the largest country. Uh, so is that the purpose of Russia? 
well, Russia was for, you know, for, uh, for the last, I don't know, at least 20 years, most likely more, looked at Ukraine as an important kind of buffer between it and Russia and the West, and uh, believed that Ukraine as a sister and a sisterly nation, and many Russians believe that Ukrainians, or at least a large part of them, are actually Russians living under a foreign, in a foreign kind of land, but still they're Russians, and that they should be at least neutral. That's not join the European Union or NATO and be part of the so-called Russian Mir, Ruski Mir, the Russian world. And that's really basically how this conflict began, evolved. It began at least decades before, not in uh, two years ago. Two years ago, it went into an all-out war. And so that still is the Russian objective to keep Ukraine under in the what kind of Russian sphere of influence, speaking in terms of the 19th century. And that's not really much accepted in Ukraine or the West. So we have, again, a very bloody conundrum there, which most likely will be decided eventually on the battlefield. It's either the Korean scenario when we get a ceasefire based on more or less line of control as it is, or one of the sides this conflict suddenly collapses. Mm. There's a lot of talk that this is right now, the fighting is like during World War One, like we're done, but World War, World War I, uh, the stalemate, the bloody stalemate ended in one side collapsing. So that's also a possibility. It could be a Korean scenario, it could be a collapse of one of the sides, and then there, there's going to be a political solution that one side accepts and the other is not, bigger, but it's defeated. We'll have to see, and it will be decided in the end by the soldiers fighting in the field. Okay. Uh, Joe Bo, so is it really about, uh, you say, the Russian was presented or is presented in the West as an expansionist? Uh, you know, the purpose is to seek more territory uh, beyond its borders, or it has something to do with, uh, you know, from the Russians, you know, at least official point of view, that is, you know, it's, it's not a war between, not only a war between Russia and Ukraine, it's uh, like a war between Russia and the West. It's about the NATO, it's about the national security. So what's the key, uh, key issue here? Well, when people say something, you have to differentiate uh, what is his true ten- intention and what is propaganda. But sometimes it is so much, you know, mixed, it's difficult to tell. But uh, what you have been talking about reminds me of what uh, uh, Greek historian Sisyphus said the fundamental reasons for war are actually three things. One is interest, another is the fear, the third is honor. Now, it's very difficult for people to define what uh, interests are, or they can say, oh, everything is my interest. But in this uh, war, I would say that honor is very much something uh, that is important for Russia, given what the power has said, because even President Putin has described the uh, Ukrainian and the Russian people as one people. So this kind of uh, feeling, I just try to imagine how he might feel, you know, this kind of a feeling of uh, one's brother would just betray yeah, his own brother and would turn into the embrace of uh, what appeared to be as an enemy. So this, this, this would be hard you know, for him to bear. And uh, for example, like when we talk about Chinese city, Xi'an, 
Okay, you just know it's an ancient Chinese city. But if you talk about Chang'e, the ancient name of Xi'an, then it's totally different. It reminds you of the heydays of Chinese Tang Dynasty, yeah, where all the different cultures would actually merge with one another of China in the heydays.、Mm-hmm. So this kind of, uh, of uh, things that is a totally unrealistic and unmaterial, that is called honor, yeah, is actually vexed with fear, fear of、uh, losing、uh, this country, and、uh, this country being, you know, stationed with the weapons of NATO. So this kind of fear, you know, mixed with this kind of honor, and even this kind of old nostalgic idea of sphere of influence would be the real poison, yeah, yeah, to make this work in such a negative way. Okay, related development. Of course,、uh, the U.S. side has uh, uh, say has been saying that、uh, you know their intelligence has found out there there are missiles from、uh, North Korea and the launchers. Uh, in the side of Russia,、uh, so is it、uh, you know with the revelation of the information? Let's assume it's true.、Uh, are we seeing the, the the war, the conflict is being expanded, or you know, more countries get involved?、Uh, Joe Boh here. DPRK certainly is supporting Russia. That is obvious. The question is, how useful is DPRK's support? I would say militarily, it would not matter so tremendously. Because、uh, how reliable the, the weapons of DPRK, we don't know. Because、um, these missiles actually are not used in the Korean Peninsula, so are they the combat tested? Okay, this probably is the first time the combat tested. But、uh, Russia actually can produce all types of weapons basically, and right now the military production is in full gear. So I believe what Russia wants probably is a more kind of a political. Uh, support, although、uh, from time to time they might, they might need some more ammunition, but that I believe、uh, is just a, a kind of secondary sort. With that, we come to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qingdao. See you next time. With a history of five thousand years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year. On the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. Will, will you marry me? He asked, and with little hesitation, she said, <laughs> "Yes." Five thousand years of amazing Chinese folk tales. My father must not go to war. Someone must take his place. You'll find Chinese folk tales season three, wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related: the hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.